navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the August episode of Datascape's Cloud Update Podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the latest announcements from the leading public cloud vendors with industry experts. I'm going to introduce those experts right now. Today, I'm joined by Pierre Glousseau, who will be discussing the AWS updates. Hey, Pierre, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me again. Great to have you back, as always. And a Datascape regular, Warner Chavez, will be discussing the Azure updates. Hey, Warner, welcome back. Hey, Chris, how are you? Great to be back here navigating the cloud space with you guys. Great. And also joining us is Stefan Frechette, who will be discussing the GCP updates. Hey, Stefan, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Chris. Hey, guys, how you doing? Glad to be back here. Great to have you. It's been a little while, but the cloud, you know, largely due to the cloud updates changing a little bit and kind of tying to their their shows. So these are a little bit less frequent, but we'll keep making these nonetheless. And with that, I think we will start with GCP today. Stefan, some exciting news from Gartner about Google Cloud IaaS. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, that, that just came in recently. So for the second consecutive year, Google has been a part of the leader in the magic quadrant when it comes to IaaS, so infrastructure as a service. And really what was this all about is that Google is really aiming to be the easiest cloud for enterprise to do business. So great contribution overall for the last year. And then again, they're with all the major investments that have been doing, and it's a great honor for them to pursue and be part of that magic quantum. I think it's only going to get better in the upcoming years. So, yeah, there's some great competition out there. If you look at the what Amazon's doing and Azure, I think it's great for Google. So good yeah. for them. Yeah, I agree. Period. it looks like AWS opened a new region. Where was that, and what does that mean to us? Right. So AWS opened a new region in the Middle East, in Bahrain, more exactly. And so this is a full first-class region. It has three AZs, so it's a, a fully supported. It has most of AWS services already present in there. Its API name is ME South One for Middle East. It already hosts a large quantity of important Middle Eastern customers. So banks, national government entities, and so on are already running there. So we know that some of them are already doing data analytics, some AI, machine learning. So all their services are already there. So for any company that has customers worldwide, of which um, Middle East, well, they actually can leverage some endpoints there to deliver services more efficiently to those users. So CDN, CloudFront is fully supported. So that's good news. Um, So that's the 22nd region, 69 AZs overall, and there are three more coming shortly. And I believe those names are, there's going to be one in Cape Town, so South Africa, Jakarta, and Indonesia, and Milan and Italy. Excellent. That is exciting as these public clouds expand. Speaking about expansion, Warner, you wanted to talk about something called Bastion. Can you tell us what it is and more about it? Yeah, but I think before we cover that one, we should cover the other update I have on Azure because it's like Pyrrhic just said, like, well, AWS opened a couple of regions in the Middle East. Well, let me tell you what, Pyrrhic, Azure just opened a couple of regions in the Middle East as well. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, that's right. That's right. You know, they, they listen. They have a mole somewhere in each other's offices, and they just, like, <laughs> as soon as one starts planning something, they're like, well, I'm going to open the pizza joint across the street from you as well. <laughs> so Azure is opened in Abu Dhabi and Dubai as well, a couple of regions in the Middle East there so that there's multi-region deployment you can do there already. And they're offering right now Office 365 and Azure 
And the plan is to have Dynamics 365 and the Power Platform, so Power Apps, Power BI, and the rest of those apps and services offered by the end of the year. And yeah, as like Pierre said, it looks like cloud providers are doing a strategic push now that they've covered most of Asia, the Americas, and Europe. They're doing a strategic push into the Middle East and Africa. It looks like Microsoft as well. They have announced that they're doing a push and alliance to do certain partnerships and push Microsoft learning programs in those regions of the world. So there you go. That's one update out of the way because, I mean, it just makes sense just to prove how competitive these cloud spaces are, right? It's like, here's your update. Well, I got another update for you. <laughs> yeah, anyway. that's that's true. All right. You so still want to cover the bastion? Yes, we can I still do. Cover let's, the bastion. Let's, let's do bastion. So the bastion is uh, it's an interesting idea. It's basically John Box as a service offered by Microsoft integrated into the Azure portal so that you don't have to deploy your own jump box and then harden it and then manage all the security to it. Instead, you just deploy the Bastion service and you manage all the access through the Bastion service. And then through that same service on the portal, you have access to SSH or RDP to any of your machines inside Azure, right? I mean, this is a very let's say useful service i find obviously because it saves you the time to have to you know run your own vms and especially jump boxes you always want to have them with the proper security config and make sure that only the people that have access to them have access to them so it just simplifies that whole management piece to just have the azure bastion service take care of all of it and something that i think is very interesting is that once they develop this I mean, potentially they could just extend that Bastion service to other areas, right? And and also something else that keeps in mind because Bastion is supposed to be that human entry port into the rest of your Azure subscription, then also it's fully audited as well, right? So you have a log of who went into the Bastion, at what times, what time they closed their session and so on, right? Mm-hmm. That, that also important good. for service providers like like Pythian as well, right? Because then we don't have to be asking our clients if they have already a jump box, if they set up one up for us and so on. We could just, you know, ask them to use the Bastion service and go in that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like the log of access as well. In the spirit of competition, Stefan, we're going to come back to you and talk about a couple of different acquisitions that Google has made since we last spoke. Let's start with, I guess, the oldest. Let's talk about the Looker acquisition. Oh, interesting one. Absolutely. So Looker. Yeah, so anybody doing straightforward analytics within the cloud. So, and that was a while ago. I think that was while we were at Next, that was announced. So really, so what it is essentially is it's to extend business analytics offering uh, in two important capabilities. First, it enables the ability to define business metrics in a consistent way across data sources. And it makes it while maintaining consistent definitions and calculations. Looker will be a game changer, true? So Google has Data Studio, which is a great tool, but that will enable more the enterprise adoption in the digital journey for the customers are using analytics, being able to create dashboards and reports. So a huge announcement early back in April. So Google announced that within that upcoming year, the full acquisition and onboarding Looker will be a great addition to the offerings right now in the GCP environment. So, yeah, so very interesting perspective on that one. So I'm interested to see how this is going to play out with a competition like Tableau. I mean, the next day when this was announced, Salesforce acquired Tableau. 
So there's a lot of movement within the data in analytics space. So yeah, let's see what happens there. So yeah. So what's the name of the other Google product? The one that was the one um, that before they bought Looker? Well, the one that Google currently has, which is not part of the GCP platform, which is really integrated within G Suite, is called Data Studio. Data Studio. So what are the yeah. odds that they will keep that as a parallel development? Or do you see that as being retired and everything will just move into Looker by Google or whatever it will end up being called? That's a great question, Warner. I mean, I, I still foresee Data Studio to be around. It's a great nifty little tool because it tightly integrates, which, like I said, in G Suite. Maybe it'll be rolled in, maybe not. I don't have that visibility for now, yeah. but it would still, I think, will be very in demand. And a lot of customers are using Data Studio for in and out data analytics very quickly, connecting to data sets within the GCP environment. Yeah, but the breadth and depth of Looker will really help Google up their game when it comes to analytics, true, and connecting and playing with big, huge data sets within BigQuery and Bigtable. So, yeah, I look forward to that one. Yeah, it makes sense. It just kind of helps complete the stack. And then the other one you wanted to discuss was Elastifile. Absolutely. Elastifile, So, which is really file storage as a service. So Elastify is a provider of what we call scalable enterprise file storage for the cloud. They've been a pioneer in solving different challenges associated with file storage for enterprise-grade applications running at scales in the cloud. So again, a great addition to Google's portfolio. Really what Elastifile has built is a unique software-defined approach to be able to manage NAS, network-attached storage, and enabling organization to scale that performance and capacity I would say cumbersome overhead, true. So building on this technology, teams will be able to make great integrations with on-prem, huge storage workloads and extend that to the cloud. Mm. So a huge announcement again, true. And that was just recently, true. Yep, yep, good stuff. And Warner, we'll come back to you. Let's talk about the new Azure migration program. Do you want to fill us in? Yeah, so this is something that came out of the Inspire conference, which happened, what was it, maybe like about a month ago. This is the big Microsoft partnership conference that happened, happens every year. And basically, the Azure Migration Program is now a specific program that Microsoft has created for their customers so that they can work hand-in-hand -hand with Microsoft and partners to be able to execute their Azure migrations. This includes some curated resources, step-by-steps, guidance of how to map and plan your deployments. It includes tools like Azure Migrate and Azure Cost Management. And it includes things like technical skill building. And again, this is all available to Azure and Microsoft clients. They just need to talk to their Microsoft reps and get onboarded here on the Azure Migration Program. And together with the announcement of the program, they also have GA'd a new Azure Migration Portal, which is a new portal experience where you can keep track of all your Azure Migration efforts. So if you, let's say, you're going to migrate some VMs to Azure and you're also migrating some databases or you're migrating some file shares and whatnot, this is a one-stop pane of glass where you can see all the resources that are being migrated and you can tag and describe and put notes around them as well so you can keep track of your migration project, let's say. Then you can put like, let's say, you know, this one will be migrated on a particular date or it's certain amount is dependent on something else. So it's kind of like helps you, you know, manage your migration in general. So it's a nice little software tool to be able to manage your migration. And like I said, it goes hand in hand with this new migration program, obviously, 
the big goal here is everybody, you know, make it as easy as possible to migrate. Once they're migrated, then it's a different game, right? It's just about retaining them and increasing consumption. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Pirig, it looks like Aurora has a Postgres announcement. Do you want to walk us through that one? Yes, for sure. So yes, uh, Aurora Serverless. So this is the service by AWS where databases can automatically start up, shut down, scale up or down, depending on your application needs. It's a very interesting offering. Enables you to run your database in the cloud without managing real instances, right? So you pretty much don't have to do anything. And compute and storage are dissociated so they can grow independently, which is really nice. So yes, they've had MySQL support for a while, and now the Postgres support is uh, GA. So that's excellent news. The storage layer grows from a minimum usage is 10 gigabytes, I believe, and it can scale up to 64 terabytes in increments of 10 gigs. So you can actually host a very large database on that service. And while scaling down, if you don't have any accesses to it, well, just remain in your storage. So a very interesting product. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Stefan, let's talk about Google Cloud Data Catalog. Absolutely. Now in beta, finally. What is Data Catalog? Well, it's a fully managed data discovery and metadata management service that allows you to quickly discover, manage, and understand what type of data you have in GCP. It's really aimed to be simple and powerful data discovery for organizations. So you can use Data Catalog to easily search any types of tables that you may have in BigQuery or even topics within Cloud PubSub, all through uh, across your projects within the GCP. Data Catalog is really built on the same search technology that's supported in Gmail and Google Drive. So it really allows you to quickly and find data, like I said, across GCP. It's really good for understanding your data with schematized business metadata. So one of the good things with Data Catalog is it enables business users or anyone within the organization that has access to these types of data sets and data artifacts from the GCP to add metadata for discovery and research. So I think that came a long way. And that's one of the things that was, I would say, a key offering that was missing through how, what about governance? What about these data stewards? How can they enable them to discover and find a rich data sets or connectivity to a certain source? So I think that's a great addition. It's currently in beta. I foresee maybe by the end of this year it will be full GA, but people can use it right now. And I think it's a great little tool. What I was interesting a little bit more from my perspective is how this integrates programmatically. So it's great to have somebody fill in, but uh, what I would like to see in the future is how we can actually leverage the service by adding uh, programmatically, once you created some, let's say, tables or data sets within BigQuery, if there's could be a way that that could be automatically populated instead of having to do this, let's say, in a, on a manual basis. So, yeah, yeah, another great addition. Yeah, no, um, no doubt that will come. Absolutely. Yeah. Pierre, let's come back to you. What is AWS Control Tower? Right. So AWS Control Tower is, I actually talked about this in our last podcast. And so, but I've actually seen it now and I was able to practice it a bit more. But it is basically a nice front end to provision AWS accounts for large organizations. So it's a single plane of glass to set up multiple accounts, maybe for multiple environments or multiple business divisions and so on. And so you can manage your multi-account environment. You can manage your SSO identity management, AWS single sign-on. And you can manage your federated access to accounts. And you have centralized logging from CloudTrail, from AWS config stored in S3 and so on. And cross-account security audits using AWS IAM and SSO. So this gives you 
a single plain view of all of your accounts and it's actually very interesting instead of having to you know change projects to see stuff this gives you a nice visual thing so how it's built uh, so there's a few new wordings there so the landing zone so that's basically that's a blank aws account in which you're going to wrap all of your others so that's like your default view in control tower and then you have another tool set called uh, guardrails so that's where you are going to automate implementation of your policy controls anything that has a focus on security compliance maybe cost management as well guardrails is preventive so you can block actions that are deemed risky things of the sort or it can be detective as well so it can raise alerts on non-conformant actions depending on, on what you you want to do it also comes with something called blueprints so it's well-architected design patterns for you to reuse in your landing zone. And finally, yeah, the environments. So you have a view on environments, which are actually AWS accounts that maybe you will have a view on your dev environment, on your QA and prod and so on. Users interact with it by making a request on the service catalog. And so the admin allows or, or disallows those, those service requests. So a very interesting kind of lockdown access to your AWS accounts. Yeah, yeah. Well, managing at scale is, is important. And actually, on that same topic, Warner, do you want to talk about Azure Lighthouse? Yeah, so what was the name of your service, Pyrrhic? Control Tower. <laughs> well, I got a lighthouse for you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and guess what? I can deploy Azure Blueprints on it, too. <laughs> and somebody called somebody and said, like, yeah. hey, you know, there's only so many things we can call Blueprints. And they're like, fine, I will reuse the name Blueprints. Okay. <laughs> but but we're not reusing Control Tower, so it's a lighthouse instead. And I don't know, maybe I'll just have to repeat what Pyrrhic just said, but uh, it's a very similar concept, really. It's management and scale for different accounts and tenants and subscriptions targeted for people like us, actually, like managed services providers, for example, where you might have a bunch of different clients and the clients can just give you access through Azure Lighthouse to their resources, and then you can manage them through your own Azure account. You can push policies, you can help deploy images, basically build the standards that you want people to follow in the accounts that you manage. You do have, you know, joking aside, there is the concept of a blueprint as well, where you can bundle different templates with different scripts. So it's not just like one, let's say one ARM template that deploys a bunch of resources, but you can actually do some orchestration. Let's say the blueprint is to deploy these resources, then wait for them to be done, then run this script and so on and provide those to your sub accounts, let's say. Obviously very useful for managed services providers. I see this also very useful for IT orgs inside you know, pretty big companies where they have a bunch of different subscriptions, could be even multiple tenants. So just helps to manage the cloud at scale, which I think is, is very interesting, obviously, because it's no coincidence that both AWS and Azure kind of land in the same place with some of these things where they see the needs from their clients, clients are asking for them. And many clients are now at this point where it's, it's not just have I migrated to the cloud or how do I manage the cloud, it's how do I manage the cloud at scale when now I have like 10 accounts or 20 mm -hmm. subscriptions. And this thing is just getting too cumbersome, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Stefan, on the topic of migration, let's talk about, it looks like GCP's made a very direct shot at Redshift. Why don't you tell us about that update? 
Well, absolutely. There's a service right now in beta, and it follows up on the different storyline where GCP is going after different vendors and helping customers migrate their existing footprint and other multi-cloud vendor or even on-prem. So this one is about migrating data from Amazon Redshift to GCP. In a nutshell, really what it is, is it's about using the BigQuery data transfer. Essentially, it allows you to copy data from an Amazon Redshift uh, to BigQuery. Essentially, a service will run agents within GKE and trigger any unload operations from Redshift to a staging environment, which is usually stored in an Amazon S3 bucket. And then BigQuery will suck that information through the data transfer services from data within the S3 buckets directly to BigQuery. So again, a great nifty tool. There's one for Teradata. Even last week, GCP announced Teradata. So this is a huge game changer because even at the, some of the work that we're doing recently, a lot of customers are inquiring, hey, what's the actual best practice of moving my data from Redshift or any types of Postgres operations within AWS? So that nifty little service, migrating data to Amazon Redshift is in beta and can be used to actually make the move to the GCP platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, there's nothing wizardry in here. It's using existing tool sets. And again, it, everything is done through the BigQuery data transfer uh, services. But there's a lot of work involved through mapping, uh, schema, and that, that tool does all of that for you, too. So, okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. But well, sounds like a great opportunity for Redshift users to try out some GCP features. Oh, yeah. Let's come back to AWS period. It looks like there were a couple networking-related updates. Let's talk about the VPC traffic mirroring update. All right. So that one's an interesting one because initially when AWS first started, you weren't really allowed to do like uh, penetration testing or, or like deep packet inspection on your environment. And now comes a service that actually encourages this to a certain extent. So you know how on a switch, sometimes you set up one of those ports to do port mirroring. And so then you can go in and and attach a probe, a network probe to that port to inspect uh, traffic, deep packet inspection, ARP, anything. Well, now you can do that on a VPC. So basically you set up mirror sources and a mirror destination, and you can then spin up your own probe to listen to that mirror destination and to inspect all the traffic that's happening in your environment. So this gives like really deep insights into what is happening at your network layer in AWS. So that's quite interesting. Right now, the approach on how to use this is that you should set up your VPC traffic mirroring onto a load balancer. And behind that load balancer, you set up your own fleet of network probes, such as uh, Suricata, for example, is an, I believe, an open source deep packet inspection solution, or your Nessus, if you have that, and you would hook that up. Now, what I'm waiting to see is the next step in this offering is to actually offer the probes as a service so that you can maybe choose out of different AMI images and, and set that up quickly and efficiently. Uh, But this is going to be very, very interesting to inspect your own traffic, to identify outliers or weird behaviors, misconfigurations, but also to inspect for maybe illegitimate traffic on your network. Right. So makes sense. And we'll stick with you. Why don't you talk about the load balancer update? Right. So the load balancer update. So in short, load balancers on AWS now support UDP. And that's been an ask for a long time by customers that are maybe like in the gaming industry or host uh, specific services that rely on UDP. So now that's finally there and those customers don't have to manage their fleet of servers to handle the UDP traffic. So anything like DNS, SIP, SNMP, syslogs, radius, anything UDP, you name it, you can now host that. So there are a couple of tricks there. There's 
So on an existing load TCP load balancer, you can add uh, UDP support, but only on a different port than what was originally set for TCP. Or you can set up an endpoint, a multi-protocol endpoint that does both TCP and UDP, and that one you can use on the same port. So for example, on DNS, where you would need port 53 for UDP and TCP, you can set that up with a multi-protocol endpoint. And if you need other services, you can set that up. The other thing is there's no UDP health checks at the time. So you need to set up your health checks or backend health checks on TCP, HTTP, or HTTPS. And on the other limitation is that the load balancer backends have to be instance names for the time being, and they cannot be IPs. So IPs of maybe your own servers back in your data center over a VPN connection. You can't do that yet, but that's to come soon. Okay. Sounds good. And Stefan, no Cloudscape or, or Datascape cloud update podcast is complete without talking about Kubernetes. Why don't you walk us through the Kubernetes updates? Yes, absolutely. One of the interesting stuff that came in, I think it was mid-July or something like that, is that Google has been partnering with Coursera for quite a while now and offering a specific specialization in the different fields area, either data engineering or even just overall professional architects. So lately, they added a new one, which is about architecting Google Kubernetes engine specialization. And really what it is about is actually giving the opportunity to users or organization to ante up their game in understanding furthermore what Kubernetes brings to the table, especially on the GCP platform. I think they were offering this with a one-month free access to GCP also. But essentially what it is, it's broken down to different sub-courses and modules. It's really about, talked about the core infrastructure as a fundamental architect with GKE and then architecting workloads, how to perform Kubernetes operation, create and manage deployments, and really how do you scale this and promote this to production. So a great course on Coursera. I don't know if anyone has actually leveraged or any types of offerings within Coursera, but the ones that are actually in partnership with Google are really strong and very easy to use. On that same topic, I think one of the other interesting news that was happening within Kubernetes is now there's like a Kubernetes marketplace where you can actually deploy containerized apps, which are prepackaged. So as an example, there's a couple of them that are actually available right now if you go to Marketplace. As an example, Elastifile is one of them, Neo4j, a graph database, Couchbase, anything GitLab. So these are actually containerized package applications that you can actually point and click within the Marketplace and deploy yourselves in GKE environments. I think that was a great offering, true. So instead mm -hmm. of starting from scratch and building your own, these ones have been vented and production ready. You can actually expand on them and actually change them and customize them as you wish and you will. Yeah, they're all based on open source standards. They're DevOps ready. And yeah, there's a lot of great documentation for that also. Good. And, and is that also where you access the deep learning containers that you had mentioned for the show? Absolutely. That was another interesting announcement, deep learning containers. So these are prepackaged, performance optimized, and all tested and ready to go. So you can start it immediately. Not necessarily if you want to go full production, but if you want to have a mix of local and cloud workloads, deep learning containers are actually a good thing. So if you know Docker very well, you want to start locally or for one instance, you can actually just, the important thing here is that you have to understand and know the gcloud command, but it's all command line. But basically these deep learning containers are all pre-configured with Jupyter environments. So each can be pulled easily directly for prototyping. You can enhance them with any types of other offering or software that you need within these containers. Yeah, and they're all with uh, the latest Python tree, which is important too. I know Python 2 is being decommissioned very soon. So yeah, a nifty little offering 
for data science in the analytics space, uh, deep learning containers. Good. And Warner, we'll come back to you. Why don't you tell us what Azure Data Share is? Azure Data Share is another new service that is built on top of basically the other storage services that are in Azure. And the idea is that people are sharing data back and forth every day, all the time. But we use very wildly differentiated approaches into how we secure and share that data, right? So somebody, let's say, will share some data with somebody else using, let's say, a storage account key, which is, you know, it's usually not recommended. And then somebody else will share one with a shared access signature thing, which is you can give more controls and you can make it expire and so on. And maybe somebody will share directly using an Azure role. So there's many different ways that people are doing this already every day, right? Just to get their jobs going. And it's the same way with business to business transmissions of data as well, right? So the idea is that with the data share service, you can stop interacting directly with your storage services to share data with outside parties and instead do it all through the data share service. That way you have everything in one place. Everything is done through the policies in the data share place. If you need to, let's say, revoke somebody from their access to some of your underlying data, then instead of having to go through, you know, all the individual storage services, you could just remove their access through the data share service. And that's it. That's the end of the story. Right. So let's say, for example, you have a partner and you share things that you have in blob storage, things that you might have in data lake storage, things that you might have inside a SQL database, for example, right? And then suddenly, you know, they leave, then you have to, you know, go back and make sure that you remove all the access from all these different places as well, right? And different ways to do it. So I think it's just a better, easier way so that everything is more governed. Everything is easier to manage. It's better at scale, of course, because you can just manage everything to that data share service and not have to deal with the individual services. So right now, it is supporting the blob storage and the data lake storage. And I assume that they're going to start at some point integrating the databases as well, right? Because it just makes sense, right, to mm-hmm. integrate the databases next. But for now, I think the service is in preview. And those are the two underlying storage services that they are targeting, right? So very interesting as well. That's one of those services built on top of another service to produce some higher level functionality in this case. Right. Let's wrap the Azure updates by discussing proximity placement groups. Yeah, so proximity placement groups is an IS feature to basically make sure that when you do a deployment that has multiple resources, they all land close to each other, close to each other being in the same physical data center, right? So if you do like a deployment in a region where you don't really specify anything related to AZs, potentially you could end up with a resource in a different AZ than another, right? So proximity placement just basically says, put these as close as you can to each other, right? And and it's all about reducing latency, any type of multi-tier app, high-performance computing, anything that is distributed computing will probably benefit from just being always as close to each other, right? So just something that people will likely start integrating just to be the standard, just to have the specify that you want that to be in a placement, the proximity placement group. If you're deploying multiple resources at once that are supposed to interact with each other, right? 
Mm-hmm. Good. So that's the Azure updates for this show. Let's go, Pirig, back to you. Let's talk about Ops Center. Great. So Ops Center is a nice control center for anything operations or sysadmin in AWS. So AWS teams have been listening and trying to understand how people wanted what people wanted to actually investigate metrics, troubleshoot, get them back running, and so on. So they've, they've made this service. So it's called Ops Center, and it exemplifies this approach by enabling customers to aggregate issues, events, alerts across multiple services. So that's one place to investigate and remediate issues. It's actually pretty nice. It's a nice dashboard. So you have access to information such as, so obviously the events that are triggering the alerts. You get resource and account details. So you're going to get the details on the instance that's having issues, any related resources to that instance. So maybe it has a connection to, I don't know, an Elasticsearch cluster or something of the sort. You're going to see all that graphed out. So you can quickly understand the impact of the current alert on other resources in your, in your AWS accounts. You get, obviously, a historical view of a similar events that happened previously with similar characteristics. You get AWS config changes that happened recently on those resources. So let's say, I don't know, you changed the instance size and reduced it recently. It'll tell you, oh, you did this like a week ago, so maybe that wasn't a good move to reduce the number of CPUs in memory. So that's interesting. You get a quick link to CloudTrail logs, okay? That's pretty obvious to CloudWatch alarms, of course, to CloudFormation stack information. So if that resource was deployed with CloudFormation, you get to see that as well. Quick links to access logs, to metrics. And also the one I, I find really interesting is a list of runbooks and recommended runbooks to deal with the issue. So you can you know, have your sysadmin team rely on this tool quite heavily. They have an issue that, you know, someone has run in before and has written a run book about it. It's going to be, it's going to pop up and tell them, hey, this issue is really similar to what happened before. The guy that solved this used in the run book. Maybe it applies to you too. Have a look. So, yeah, very interesting product. And I can imagine our managed services using that quite intensively for any customers of ours running in AWS. Yeah, I think that's a great feature. Let's also wrap AWS by talking about the new EC2 instances. Right. So this is a small update. So there are two new instance sizes added by AWS, so M5 and R5. So these are both fairly large instances, a lot of CPUs, a lot of memory. What's interesting on one of those instances, the ones that have D in their name, so M5D, they have like NVMe storage, so a really fast SSD scratch disks. So those are going to have way better performance than any other SATA controller that you could have. So that's interesting. And they also have an offering on different CPUs. So if you take an M5A instance, you will get an AMD CPU. Hmm. And an AMD CPU, they resell for about 10% less than an Intel CPU. So you can make a bit of savings there for workloads that don't really specifically require an Intel CPU. Hmm, that is interesting. Okay, Stefan, let's come back to you. We've got a couple more to go. Let's talk about Cloud DLP. Absolutely. Cloud DLP. So this is not new, but the DLP, which is Cloud Data Loss Protection, but the integration with BigQuery is something new. So essentially, organizations are trying to prevent exposure to sensitive data, which is critically important for many business. And the fact that you, you need to, to hunt down the data that is relevant, that you need to either mask or obfuscate, what cloud data loss enables you with BigQuery is to scan these BigQuery data sets and tables that you currently have. So this service really comes handy to give you a little bit more awareness and quick access 
to these capabilities and data sets that need to be scanned. So essentially, when you're in BigQuery, there is an option now. Once you're in the table, there is a button that you can click to do a scan for DLP, any types of sensitive data. So essentially, what it will do, it will advise you and tell you which types of column attributes met this threshold. So it will detect common sensitive data types, such as credit card numbers or customer sensitive data types to highlight intellectual property that you want to make sure that you deal with. It will publish these findings to BigQuery. And if you ever use Cloud Security Command Center, it will enable you to do further analysis and some reporting to that. It will enable you to de-identify and upsificate any sensitive data. So yeah, it's I think it's an interesting feature, true. So most of the time, as you're either migrating or importing data within the GCP platform, especially in BigQuery, that kind of work needed to be done beforehand. But now, once you load that data, that tool enables you to do the discovery and helps you take further steps to deal with sensitive data that you want to be able to control within your organization. So it's a great little tool. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. I liked the automatic redaction that it presented. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Especially you know, in, in times of uh, personal data being stolen, <laughs> like, like <laughs> the last few months. This is, yeah. uh, a lot of interesting story lately as of that, eh? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if I, I use the word a- interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that I think we haven't seen anything yet. True, I think yeah. it's unfortunate, really unfortunate. But uh, I think yeah. So I don't know where to globally from um, how we're going to deal with it. True. So I think there's rules and governance that needs to be applied from yeah, not only at the organization perspective, but I'll leave that to another discussion. But it's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also interesting though is you know Snowflake being offered on GCP. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, I think in early June, Google announced a strategic partnership with Snowflake, which is a uh, Snowflake is a really a cloud-based data warehouse and not confused with uh, Snowball. <laughs> it, provide, it provides what we call a data warehousing in the cloud. True. So again, a strategic partnership. I think the Google's last to the play here because I think AWS has that service market offering for quite a while and Azure also recently. So kudos to GCP and Google to have that partnership. And really what it enables is the customers that are wanting Snowflake workloads to be able to leverage, and that's the important piece, is to leverage any types of Google AI and further advanced analytics that the GCP platform provides. And that's really where it it would be a beneficial fit for customers to migrate or use their workloads in Snowflake within GCP is really to to mesh or use the existing environments of data that they have within their Snowflake and leverage the capabilities and analytics that the Google Cloud permits you to do. So again, a great partnership. I think we'll see that come in in the new year. I think there's going to be an early access program late in 2019, and I think GA will be certainly expected within uh, 2020 and maybe before the next Google Next coming next year. So again, a great, a great announcement, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward. So I, I've never a whole lot played with Snowflake, so. I'm eager to see if customers are going to jump on that. So, Yeah, I think Snowflake is an interesting concept and offering. It's something we will cover. You know, I've I've been talking about doing a show about it for a little while now. I just need to go ahead and and make it. So I think... Yeah, we should do a Snowflake episode. It has a couple of very interesting concepts to try to differentiate itself from some of the other offerings. Obviously, the multi-cloud being the first one, but other actual technical things they've implemented on their MPP engine that are very interesting. Yeah, I agree. So those are some great updates. Audience, you'll notice that we are not making the monthly cloud update episodes, and I mentioned that in the beginning of the show. We're going to continue to do cloud updates. We're going to continue to make after 
you know, build or, uh, geez, forget all the names, but each vendor special will be continuing to do that. We are going to continue to do these update shows, but the public cloud vendors have kind of been changing the way they do updates and they've been bundling things kind of closer to their own shows, which makes perfect sense. So we'll continue to make these, but they won't be on a monthly cadence. They will be probably every few months, certainly one a quarter, if not more. That's a generic update. And we will close with our monthly working age productivity tip. It was inspired by some of the updates that I saw. I use something, it's a browser extension called Read Aloud in Chrome, and I'm pretty sure there are other choices out there. We have no affiliation with them whatsoever. But what that does is it allows you to highlight a bunch of text, maybe a blog, maybe an article, whatever it is that you want. And it allows you to just highlight it and then just click play. And then your computer using your choice of public cloud voice, you can actually configure it with any of them. It then reads the article to you. I think it's very handy. I actually live in a very small space, so I can easily have some articles play while I do something like the dishes or whatever in my space. And it really, you know, it really helps consume content while you're doing something else. Guys, anybody out there using similar features? I'm not, so I usually set aside some time within the day or after hours to read my feed of information I try to consume, which is uh, getting very elastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just play YouTube on the background sometimes, Mm -hmm. try to consume as I'm doing something else, just find a video that I think is interesting or whatever, play it and just leave it running. Honestly, at the end, I'm not even sure I'm consuming much of it, to be honest, because it's (laughs) like you're doing something else and then you're like, you know, how much do you really like retain but you know this i guess it just keeps me occupied or feeling like i'm still entertained in some way yeah well it's not just about entertainment but it also works for emails too by the way how about you Gary? do you use any voice reading features no not really but i uh, almost always have in the background a youtube video about some tech stuff that i'm either i'm not necessarily really listening to but it's there and playing and (laughs) (laughs) learning my osmosis (laughs) yeah Same, same here. I don't know how effective it is, but yeah, I do it all the time. Good, good. Okay, well, that's all the time we had for the show today. Do you have a productivity tip? Please send it to datascapepodcast at gmail.com. I will send you swag if we use your tip. We also love feedback if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss on the Datascape, or maybe you'd like to be a guest on the Datascape. I will tell you one pro tip for anybody who wants to be on any podcast. I do get approached a lot for guests. Make sure you listen to the podcast. I've had veterinarians and all sorts of very irrelevant people you know, attempt to you know, get on the show. But if you ever want to be on a show, listen to the show first and make a relevant suggestion. And if you do, we would be very interested in potentially having you on the show. The biggest compliment you can also give us is by telling a friend about the podcast or writing a review on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.